0: You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia and Katula, the Whedon Foundation, and listeners like you. If you love the work Rewilding is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast while you're there. A biochemist by training, Mark Fisher has worked in the pharmaceutical industry and in pure science. In a change of direction, he qualified as a permaculture designer and did work in landscape design. Mark launched a manifesto for rewilding Britain in 2003, having been inspired by hiking the national parks and open spaces of Canada and America. He taught himself about wilderness ecology and rewilding and explores these through his website, Self-Willed Land, an advocacy website since 2003 for wild land and nature. His focus is the transformation of Britain through rewilding, a new future where landscapes of increasing naturalness will have open access to the public for physical discovery and spiritual enjoyment. Mark recently became a member of the IUCN Commission for Ecosystem Management as a result of setting up with others a task force on rewilding in response to the drift in its meaning, which is where we started our conversation today. I wanted to start off with uh, the work that you've been doing of late. You are a prolific writer. You did a comprehensive report of the histories going all the way back to the Wildlands Project and Wild Earth and the Halcyon days of Uh, Dave Foreman and Reed Noss and Michael Soule batting about this new term, rewilding. And And,
1: and yourself, Jack, and yourself.
0: I came in about, you know, 95, 96 and met Dave and was immediately thrown into the Sky Island mapping project. And as executive director of Sky Island Alliance. What's going on there? Why did you feel the need to, you know, really, truly set the record straight about the origins of rewilding?
1: Well, the, the difficulty is, is that uh, over the last decade uh, rewilding has been taken on as a term by people who, who really don't know anything about the origins of it, or at least uh, have looked at it, and, and they very much made it in their own image. And one of the prevailing images that, that's come through in, in Europe is this concept of nature development coming out of the Netherlands. Um, it, it's epitomized by a, a project in the Netherlands called Vardersplassen, which has been about leaving um, animals to breed within a, a large area, fenced off area, to the point where they've reached a, a population where they start to starve and die because they just eat themselves out of house and home. And um, they've reached food-limited carrying capacity now for many years, prior to this point being reached um they the advocates of this nature development uh, were saying well this is how to create new nature this is what uh, rewilding is all about and fundamentally it is not it's ecologically illiterate and, and so what i've been doing as part of my um, advocacy website is trying to describe how this has happened um what what is wrong about it Uh, And what should be done instead? And and really, uh, it it started back in 2003 when I first wrote my uh, manifesto for rewilding um, Britain. Um, uh, I I eventually got it published in uh, British Association of Nature Conservationists magazine. And uh, we did a a, a round robin amongst other people uh, uh, to write responses to each other's article. And I made the point. That what was happening in the Netherlands was just making it very easy for people to turn around and say, well, the thing that mainstream nature conservation, which is a gardening approach to nature, is is the same as rewilding. And it just wasn't true. It was just letting people have a license to do something um, that was just dead easy that they were doing all the while. Um, But they weren't thinking about the ecological consequences of it. And, And very much my website is about me Developing my own ideas. I'm, I'm self-taught about all these things. I, I, I when, you know, I was a biochemist when I was at university, and then when I worked in the pharmaceutical industry. So very, very much for really me, it's about learning myself. And I suppose the reason why they, there are so many articles on my website, and, and they tend to be a bit long, is it's, it's very much a very personal thing of uh, using the writing of articles learn the ecology of each ecological restoration.
0: Well, I can tell you that there's an awful lot of people in the movement doing the work. You are certainly what I would consider a self-willed expert. <laughs> oh, that's,
1: that's very kind. That's a, good, that's a good, good, good expression as well,
0: yeah. One of the things that we've been talking back and forth on email, so we have a little bit of a history and it's so wonderful to be able to actually talk to you uh, about some of the things we have been talking about. At first, when we really started ramping, re- rewilding up again, uh, the website and um, a new board, pretty much a, a new board and a new vision for how we want to, you know, interact and be a part of, of uh, the movement, between 2010 till uh, just recently, May of last year, rewilding took off ac- around the world in ways that yeah. I think, you know, Dave said in the very first uh, interview on Rewilding Earth was, was pleasing to him and sort of surprising how much it's taken off yeah. and it really does and since then we've talked with other people about uh, their ideas on what has happened and and how this is translated on the ground and a couple of things that I saw to watch people mm. talk about things like should we call it wilderness or should we call it wildness yes and yeah. and yeah. it was coming from people who were clearly never set foot a, or or if they did, were pr- improperly impacted <laughs> yeah. uh, by yeah. wilderness. I mean, if you've never grown up with it, I've come to some sort of a, a, a better understanding uh, of what it might be like to grow up in a place that has absolutely no wilderness. And then to look at rewilding and how it's described and stories of a, of a land that has a lot of wildness left. I mean, four percent isn't that great, but we do have designated wilderness. What is it like to care, to have set foot in wilderness, to have experienced what wildness really, really, truly is, self-willed land really is, uh, and then to live in Britain, <laughs> where so where you have to be faced with so many people who don't um, yeah. who don't get it.
1: Well, yeah, that's that's a very sore point. One of my colleagues' wives once said to me, "You can't." Enjoy going walking anywhere in Britain, and I said, "Well, yeah, it's it's a tough ask to try and find someone somewhere um, which you couldn't criticise in some way for being affected by human management. It is very difficult to find um, self-willed land, um, land that's, where there's no intervention. Um, but but I can't I can't let that stop me from giving that story to people." that if you had the chance in your own country to walk in truly wild land, you'd be amazed at how wonderful it was and how uplifting it was and how it would would humble you uh, and give you an incredible experience in your life and that you'd want to have more of it, more of it. And, you know, you wouldn't want to have to go 7,000 miles across the Atlantic to be able to do it. You want it in your own country so it, it has been tough but, but but I think what I've tried to do along with other friends is to do the right thing is that we there, there's a prejudice against wilderness in Britain there is a presumption um, that wilderness is not right in Britain that Britain is a, an entirely managed uh, landscape and, and that's the best landscape it could ever be and that we really don't want wilderness here at all and what you have to do is you have to, to, to pick away at that and, and say well think about trying to have a different approach um, to land. Don't feel as though you've got to manage it all. Try and take away this prejudice that you have all the while um, and and understand that what you will find is that there's an expression that um, is unselfing. When you go into a wildland place, it no longer becomes about you. It becomes about um, the ecology of the place, the big picture where you, you as a uh, a human uh, are looking at it in awe and learning from it. You, you lose yourself in it, and, and we try and put that enthusiasm, but also try and point out that one thing we've talked about. I think Jack is that you know the rules of ecology don't change just because you're on a different continent. And for people to say that no. you know wilderness can't exist in Europe is a nonsense because. What we've done as a, a wildland research institute, which is an institute I belong to at the University of Leeds, is that we've built a register of wilderness in Europe based on 13 criteria. We, we, we were employed by the European Commission to do this, to uh, identify areas of, of, of wilderness in Europe, to show that it exists. Uh, we did a report for the Scottish government um, when there was a resolution in the uh, European Parliament about wilderness. Um, they wanted to know what were the protected area systems in Europe that would, could protect wildland, and we we produced that report. We've done all that we needed to do in Europe to show that there is no difference in the ecology between America and Europe; that there are. Uh, highly protected areas in Europe like there are in um, America in the designated wilderness. Um, we, we were the first people to show that the uh, distribution of the large carnivores in, in Europe uh, matched where the protected areas were so people were getting it in the right place. And we've documented the, the distribution of wolves marching westward across Europe. There are, there are, there's no country in continental Europe now that doesn't have a presence of wolves it's yeah. only britain and ireland because we are islands surrounded by water that has this prejudice against uh, large carnivores that we don't have them ourselves and what what we've got to face here i was involved for a short period in a, uh, a project to try and reintroduce lynx into uh, britain uh, and it's a process that, uh, uh, that, you know, whereas the, the, if we we're connected to the continent, the, the links would just walk across the boundary and it would reinstate itself voluntary and you'd have to strictly protect it. In Britain, we've got all these people who say, I don't want it here. Yeah. I don't want my sheep uh, killed by it. Um, our landscape no longer accommodates carnivores. It's too modified. We just don't want it here. So very much, you know, I, I, myself and my colleagues, We've laid the groundwork to say there's no reason why Britain should be anywhere different from anywhere else. There's no reason why Europe should be different from anywhere else. And all the systems are in place for us to have wilderness in Europe, to have large carnivores in Europe, and to have them in Britain as well.
0: One of the things I think that might have been helpful i guess is i've noticed that a lot of conversations with people who are in part of the shift or the drift of the the, right. the true core nature and meaning behind rewilding as originally i mean nobody here was taking into account britain when when we right. were talking about we were always talking about north america primarily okay. the states but connecting to and yeah. so you have to understand the backdrop of that is really huge, big wilderness areas, never even right. close to what we wanted, all cut right. apart by roads and developments and farms yeah. and things yeah. like that. And that we were, re- yeah. we were working on reconnecting. And the only stakeholders in the room in the very early days were the people on the conservation side. And right. I looked around, and I'm like, wow, we're not really, I mean, we're drawing lines on this map that goes right across yeah. this ranch land. Um, yes. yeah. When are we going to talk to that guy? Now, yeah. Yeah. because yeah. we did that in, in a vacuum sort of and we did not consider that yet it wasn't it didn't mean that we that there weren't plans to consider that to pull stakeholders in but we approached it from the land first from from the wildlife and the the crossings and the corridors that were needed we 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 were doing conservation biology and I, I was taken aback by that a little bit because it was like well when we make this map I mean this has got to make land managers and um, owners and other stakeholders very, very nervous to see a bunch of conservationists right. with red pins drawing lines yeah. on maps over their land, yeah. over federal land, state land, private land. You know, and they all laughed, and it was good because it we stayed pure. It's like, what does biology? What does the what does the ecology of this need? Let's deal strictly with that. A lot of conversations that I've had with people in Britain have started with. Well, we have to go ask the people first.
1: Right. I'll explain that because the difficulty is is that we, we don't have this value system for public lands like you do in America. We have very little publicly owned land. Uh, it's around maybe at top 6%. And to me, you know, wildland systems are based on... Public land because that's what we that's what we found in Europe when we did the report for the Scottish government uh, pretty much the uh, uh, the Status quo was that national parks in most of the countries uh, in Europe are publicly owned land and the strict nature reserves are also publicly owned land in, in Britain We have a protected area system that that is blind to ownership of land so the majority of our alleged conservation lands are in private ownership and those private owners need to be incentivized with money to ensure that the activities they carry out don't harm nature there so in that sense yes we we have a great difficulty here because there is no concept of using public land for wildland and Therefore, most people think, well, well you, the only recourse you have is to talk to private landowners to see if you can uh, in, you know, infiltrate some of your ideas about wildlife. And, that, and that's really what rewilding in, in Britain has turned out to. It's about farming. It's not about creating full food webs. It's about how can you get agri environment subsidy to allow you to graze your land Um, and call it rewilding. Because that's fundamentally all it is. That's what nature development is. It's a process of putting livestock within a fence, grazing the land and calling it rewilding. And um, the the epitome in this country, the the chairman of the national charity, Rewilding Britain, um, he's got a farm, 4,000 acres. He he gets uh, 1.4 million pounds income a year. Uh, of which uh, around 400,000 pounds of that is agri environment subsidy for doing nothing and rewilding without having to do any work the, the embarrassing thing about it and and, and the the, 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 the I, jack i can't tell you how people i can't call them liars but they misrepresent things so this 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 farm they say well we've got all this wonderful new wildlife there and it's all because of the cows grazing there. But actually the new wildlife is there is because an area of arable land um, began to develop scrub. Because they didn't get their agro-environment grant funding to put a fence around it to put the cattle in for about eight years afterwards. So uh, the scrub developed, this attracted all the wildlife in terms of the butterflies and the birds, et cetera, et cetera. Then they put the fence up, put the cows in, and said, oh, well, it's all down to the cows. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a nonsense. They change the complete understanding of what rewilding is. What they say is that all landscapes in their original state were the same as they are now in farmland. That's what they call wild nature. and And that's what they maintain in these landscapes inside these fenced areas. And there's no scientific proof for it. There's no justification for it. They just say that and they do it and they call it rewilding. And it's just a poor thing. One of the most inspiring things for me was to do that history of rewilding through Wild Earth and the Wild Earth Project. Because every page of that was the ecology of wild nature. It wasn't making things up, it wasn't supposing something, it was learning from nature and learning how to be able to fit that wild nature into a landscape so that it was able to thrive alongside us. And when you look at what happens in Britain and in Europe, it's just rubbish. There's no there's no ecological understanding, there's no conceptual approach to it, it's just a whim and a fantasy about turning grass blue because that's what they want to do. They've got their own idea of what a landscape should be and the way they achieve it is this one approach of putting up a fence and sticking livestock in it. it, it what it's doing is hijack the aspiration of ordinary people, young people in particular, for wild land because they maybe don't spend the amount of time that I can in terms of understanding what's going on and they're just pleased to hear these messages of alleged rewilding and, and take it at face value. We set up an IUCN rewilding task force and we contacted the um, Commission on Ecosystem Management as part of the um, IUCN and said we um, we're a bit cons- well. We're not bit. We're concerned about the drift in what's happening to the meaning of rewilding, and we very much like to set up this task force, which is a, a standard system within the International Union of Conservation of Nature, um, to spend uh, a couple of years um, looking at rewilding, um, what where it came from, and what's happening to now, and then report to them. And uh, uh, the basis of uh, whatever report. Will be how uh, the Commission of Ecosystem Management in the ISN uh, will regard rewilding from that point. So we very much feel it's an important task to be able to put down the reality of rewilding rather than the propaganda and and steer that's going on um, and draw it back to its origins, draw it back to the real rewilding away from what these shifting rewilders are are doing to. There are some free living beaver in Scotland which which are now accepted as being free living. Um, We have a trial uh, of free living beaver in England um, which are not yet accepted as being um, legally free living. And in both those locations, England and Scotland, the only reason why uh, one of the populations in Scotland and one of the populations in England is there is because they were illegally leased in the first place. Mm. That's how people have become so frustrated about the fact that the simple thing of reinstating beaver is such hard work in this country. What we've got now, though, is is we've got people say, oh yeah, great thing, beaver. The whole country now is getting beaver mad about how great they are at um, managing landscapes. I mean, why do we have to look at wild animals as managers of landscapes? Wild animals have an existence. Let them get on with it. Anyway, what we've got now is other people who are getting hold of beaver from Europe, where there's free living, and sticking them behind fences and saying, we've just rewilded this place. We've, we've brought back the beaver. No, you haven't. All you've done is you've used those beaver just like a cow in a field. And I'm afraid that, that's the mentality we've got.
0: A couple of times, and with a couple of guests, we went around the world. It started with Dave people are trying to use the term they're, they're, they are using it. They're they're like, we are rewilding and, and some things yeah. are doing great. That, that recent yeah. news article in the uh, peninsula in Australia, um, mm. where they're trying to put back a huge number of species, actually uh, right. it seems right. very ambitious. And I, you know, yeah. when I see that's the top, layer of something when i see people saying we want to put back all these species i begin to become at least satisfied that somebody's trying because if they're going to try to put back those species they're going to have to right the wrongs that have been made on the land so they can
1: even uh, live. Uh, exactly there. yes yeah and, and and in europe quite a, you, you can find examples where um, they don't use the word rewilding it's not um, a word that actually uh, exists in most European languages, in the same way that not all European languages have a word for wilderness. Um, One of the things that is understood, though, in in Europe is non-intervention. And what you will find, I mean, it's a much easier thing to to find in in other languages, is that they'll talk about um, gradually increasing the area of non-intervention in a protected area. So, for instance, in in Germany, all the national parks there which are are predominantly well no they aren't they're they're publicly owned and they've given themselves a target to have at least 75 percent of the national park area to be non-intervention they've also set themselves a target um nationally of having two percent of wilderness by area um well uh, they're gonna have to get a rig on because it's it's by 2020 but nevertheless they've Hmm. set it in their their biodiversity strategy to have wilderness. And there are other countries like Austria um, have um, uh, aspirations to gradually increase the amount of non-intervention area in the, their national park. The further you go east, the greater this already exists, this, uh, this idea of non-intervention, because they've got lands where they've the cores of their national parks are strictly protected, where there is no human activity um, other than enjoyment of the space and and science. And I'm very struck by um, Poland's uh, draw national park, where once they'd seen what would happen if they left an area of that national park alone, they've gradually been increasing the areas, um, the total area um, of non-intervention. So they may not call it rewilding, but it is the same thing very much. And what you have to do is you have to give these examples to show, again, you know, um, uh, Europe is not different from America. Ecology doesn't work on different uh, principles in in America and and Europe. Um, There are people who understand that the the best way to get wild land is to withdraw human management from it. And and it's happening. One of the things that that strikes me is that the wild earth was a, a journal of people local activists and it starts there it start you nothing happens unless you've got local activists wanting to be involved it's not like the I I I wasn't there but I don't think it would, the Wildlands project would not go somewhere if they weren't if they weren't invited
0: there were people there who didn't even want to be on record as being there because they ah, it,
1: it, it would right.
0: con- it yeah. would conflict with their positions in government. I think the statute of limitations is right. far over by now. But <laughs> you know, it, yeah. uh, So we involved them, but, the, but we, we had a moment of purity of just around the science. There was a moment in right. the that, and then you bring people in to sit around the table, look at all of these maps that have already been looked at, and say, here's where we think some connections can be made. Here's a corridor, yeah. here's, a good, here's a good buffer area. We'd have to talk yeah. to that rancher. We'd have to talk to yeah. this. The conversation was always there about the people.
1: But there are many countries that are very mature in the way that they look at their protected areas. So they will, what they will do is they'll have a, a view of ecological networks nationwide, and they'll map them. And so they'll get people to understand, well, we've got these protected areas, um, but what we need to do is to link them up and what we'd like you to do is to consider working on these areas and see what way you can contribute to doing that. And that's what a mature society does. And I, I thought it was quite interesting recently is that um, I noticed there's a bill going through Congress at the moment mm. about um, wildlife corridors in America. Yeah. Bit, bit late considering yeah. what was in wild earth. But hey, it's, a, it's, a, it's another sign of a maturity towards understanding how wildlife works and if what you can do is not have to necessarily always rely on activists but what you can do is to give them a framework a legislative framework within which they its a backdrop to what they do that's brilliant and you know Hungary has an ecological network there's a ecological network for brown bears in Macedonia there, there was a, an ecological network for Wildcats in Germany, and this is working at all these different levels. And when you can work with some kind of statutory backing, or at least um, federal or state gov backing, that's when you can get people involved. And, and what, 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 they, what they have to do, in a sense, is bite down on their prejudice, and become part of the team. To, you know, you can have your disagreements, But what you don't get is a veto. And I think that's very important. I fear that very much wild nature is always kicked in the teeth because people quite often take to themselves a veto on its presence. And and what you have to do is you have to put them in a situation where they have to think about not just themselves, but the whole of society thinks about wild nature and that you come to a compromise amongst all yourselves about what you're able to do and how, what you're able to support.
0: One of the things that I really appreciate in talking to you is that I grew up in a place that I could go and get lost. And there was something right. bigger than me out there that could eat me. Yes, That is incredibly yeah. important. I know now I, I took it for granted. I grew up with this yeah. stuff, yeah. but there's an example out there and several more uh, that we yeah. talked about today, where if you are not exposed to that, or if you don't get out of the country and expose yourself to it like you did, you—this yeah. is how bad it can get. This is what yeah. people start yeah. to talk about and go, you know what? I mean, we're we're doing fine without wolves we're doing you know moderately okay with all yeah and they they're throwing away something they never had any value of in the first place so it's easier for anybody to do that and I don't exactly fault people for that except that there's information like what we talked about today out there you know and you and, and it certainly captivated you you didn't stay in Britain and go well that's it I mean we don't have wilderness and we never will and I don't you're, you really even, you went and sought it out very yeah. uh, aggressively, actually, and came over several times yeah. and spent a lot, a lot of time in a lot of different wilderness areas and gained yeah. your appreciation for that.
1: Yeah. Um, but, but also, it's about learning about it. It's because I, I have to be able to articulate it. Um, I have to see whether it's feasible. It's this thing about feasibility in Britain. I, you know, I am certain wilderness is feasible in Britain. It's the is. People don't even get past, um, you know, the first step on that, on that route because they just, they just completely reject it and that's wrong. And what I've done over the years is to find for myself what I think are most, the most wildest places in Britain. And if I can, I take people there and I say, well, look, you know, um, this may not be a wilderness, but it it's totally different from what you're used to. and. Um, you need to experience this to have your eyes opened. We do have an appalling um, top level of received wisdom in this country. You, the, you can see it on the television and in the newspapers. You'll see this pastoral scene and, and everybody will say how beautiful it is. Hmm. You know, and I, I think, oh no, it's just a piece of farmland. But, but it's the common, not perception. Well, it, it is because nobody knows any difference. You know, if, if you're constantly told that... Uh, Britain is a beautiful country, um, but it's overcrowded. Well, you know that—that's that, a load of old nonsense because in, you know uh, 80% of the population live in 10% of the land. So that's not—that's not overcrowded at all. That's an enforced high population in urban areas. There are vast areas of, of the countryside in Britain that you could lose millions of people in, but they're, they're kept for agriculture and they're kept degraded landscapes as well. So you've got to break through an enormous amount of, of, of cultural, um, prejudice and knee jerk reactions to these things. But I think you can, if all you can do is to say there is something better and describe it. And then if you can take them to see, I occasionally, um, I, I can get people to come walking for me and I'll take them a place and I'll, you know, I'll say, well, well you know, what do you see the difference? Um, and uh, we go from there. We don't do it enough. We don't we don't have the impact that we ought to have um, in doing that.
0: Say someone grew up uh, on this new version of conservation that really didn't tax humans in any significant way. That it was right. really built for. Right. If you grew up that way, you would not be faulted at all for thinking the way that you probably would about yep. wilderness yeah. and things like that. Now. Picture someone listening to this podcast and, and sort of we've pulled them out of the matrix. We've given them, I can't remember, it's the red or the blue pill, but they, they realize okay. there's something else. What would you recommend someone do to explore this further and, and make an impact in the way that you've laid out, you know, should be made?
1: What you can do is to get these young people to explore it for themselves, learn for yourself be inspired to go and find out about things like that. I mean, this sounds a bit trite, but it is the only way that wildland will go is if people can start to not accept all the while the thing that they're fed all the while, but go and find out for themselves. Find the the, the authors, find the the, the painters, for instance. One of the things I love doing is, if there's an exhibition of landscape um, artists in, in one of the galleries, I go and look at them because I'm looking for those ones for the artists who just want to represent nature, not culture, nature, because that to me is the most fascinating thing. And we don't really have the great writers in this country on nature. They tend to be quite bound up in this idea of cultural landscapes, but don't restrict yourself to to Britain. There are some great writers in Europe and in America and look for those and and look for their inspiration and bring it back.
0: A lot of good books recommended uh, regularly by one of our board members, John Miles uh, on rewilding.org. And he's hard at work, always reviewing it. I saw him at a recent board meeting sitting atop around 50 books that had been recently Uh slipped to him that he had to uh, manage to get through. He does a wonderful job. So there's a great reading list there. I know that you share an awful lot of things on your site about uh, where people can go, lots and lots of links. Yeah, Um, Yeah. 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 But maybe let's take the pressure off of everybody uh, trying to figure out exactly what are you going to be when you grow up kind of thing. It's just like shine (laughs) a spotlight and really make them try to answer a question they have no way of answering get out in wilderness go seek that everybody here they take a break year and they go to europe and that's their thing and i always wondered where do people from europe go when they're taking their (laughs) do they come and how many of them actually go i want to go get into some wilderness if not in the united states and canada and south america and brazil patagonia um where you know is that would be something to consider if you're going yeah. to take a break. Because once you go to one of these places, I've never met anybody who came away unaffected ever. Right. Even the yeah, most cynical, even the most modern yeah. urban, urbanite type person yeah. is moved. And maybe yeah. that's just the way to get started is just go fall in yeah. love with wilderness yourself. And then maybe yeah. you can help, you, that can help you decide what you might want to do
1: hard either. I mean the American system of, of, of wilderness is, 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 is it's it's there to explore. Um, the information is easy. Transport is easy. Getting to the trailhead is easy. Finding somewhere to stay is easy. You know um, the bit you have to do then is put one foot in front of the other when you when you get there.
0: No. We have three wonderful, well, we have many, many long trails, but three of the yeah. most iconic are the AT, C D T and PCT. Go look up those acronyms and see if yeah, maybe yeah, you'd like yeah. to. I'm not really into through hiking. I like following the through hikers' stories because they Oh right. There's yeah. no way to get yeah. through forty-eight different wilderness areas uh more efficiently than hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. You're going right. to go through a lot of, you know, yeah. very, very But then also a lot of very developed stuff in order to connect yourself to each of those things. And I'm not so interested in traversing those areas. I like to hop things that I, but I mean, there's so many.
1: I've done bits of the Appalachian Trail, yeah.
0: Yeah, and they're vastly different. We just had Tyler Sokash on and he talks about the fact that you can't go four miles anywhere along the uh, Appalachian Trail. I think this is the quote I'll have to uh, check, but I think it was four miles without crossing a road anywhere uh, uh, the length of or for for most of at least the length of the at and i was just like what and then he compared that because he also hiked the pct and and he gave a much right. different, much bigger mileage between roads that you're going to cross, even just right. forest roads. and yeah. things. So yeah. they're, they're all yeah. different, but they're all going to put you in touch with um, what we need, what we need more people to yeah. just know about. Yeah. It's really weird to say that we could make yeah. progress just immersing themselves in something. How could good in the world come from that? And I'll tell you, because of the Mark Fishers in the world. That exists because your, your passion and what you're doing exists uh, completely from you're inspiring yourself, you immersing yeah. yourself, and you would never be the kind of advocate that you are for rewilding and, and uh, protecting wilderness and, and things if you had not immersed yourself, and it started there for you. So why not make that maybe a good pointer for everyone else who's interested in what we're talking about and just wants to know what to do? Go have some fun. Get out there, yeah. you know. Yeah, be yeah. scared if there's a grizzly bear coming around the corner. Feel exactly.
1: it exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Don't don't go out with bells rustling.
0: Nah, it doesn't work. One where you're way. not
1: going. I you know I, I I walk. I'm I'm very lucky where I live that we have what's called ancient woodland, and and all that means is is that it's had uh, woodland coverage. Uh, for about 400 years because we can tell from from old maps and that um they have a particular uh, wildness to them in terms of, of the way the trees grow the soil and the and the species there uh, and i'm very lucky um you're gonna laugh at this but you know if i see a roe deer in my woodland it makes my day yeah because wild nature is so rare in britain it, it just doesn't it's not given its own space but we know there are roe deer in all these woodlands. We know that they mostly keep out of the way. We can tell they're there because we can, they make a scrape uh, in the in the leaf mold in the ground there um, where they, um, they spend the night there. We know they're there, um, but then to catch them by sight, to see them is just a wonderful thing. Absolutely, it just, it, it's that um, sense of what, that atmosphere of wildness that that woodland has when you've seen a roe deer in there Uh, because they're they're the woodland specialists. it's absolutely brilliant.
0: Mark, thank you for taking the time to be on Rewilding Earth and and, um, for the inspiration. we talked about some pretty hard topics and and, you know it's not all fun and games (laughs) but and it can look (laughs) really bleak at times depending on your context and and things but would you rather be doing anything else? I mean you know uh, I think you're an inspiration. I really do appreciate Uh, that that, you're here. That's very kind, but
1: no, you're quite right. I got here, eventually, I've arrived at this, this is what's important to me. Um, I'm going to die with it. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Jack.
0: Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.